Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Before Mark Williams came into prominence as the designer entrepreneur of the Firefly Vaporizer, he was a college kid in Nantucket making ceramic bongs to earn money to pay for a car he wanted to buy. In the intervening years, he went to college, got degrees in computer science and interface design, and eventually went to work at Silicon Valley, all the while maintaining his relationship with the plant. It was on one of those nights when he and his co-founder, Sasha Robinson, were bonding over their shared passion for cannabis and Burning Man that Williams decided it was time to leave his job at Apple to go out on his own. The result has been dubbed the Tesla of vaporizers because Firefly combines beautiful design with cutting-edge technology. Here we talk about why there are no drug tests in Silicon Valley, what he learned from working at Apple, and how cannabis has helped him become an overachiever. Hi, Mark. Hello, David. How you doing? So we met at a recent event introducing the Firefly 2 Plus, your update of an already very successful and beautiful cannabis vaporizer. It was a lovely evening, and I couldn't help noticing how Firefly contributed to making the party flow, if you know what I mean. And of all the things you could have worked on, and I imagine there are others in planning, why pick a vaporizer? What made you think that you could accomplish what no one else had been able to do, namely create a beautiful, efficient, adaptable product selling at an affordable price point, in my opinion? <laughs> Flyerfry has been called the most elegant, joyfully simple vaporizer on the market, the Tesla of toking. So uh, what made you think that you could do this when you started out? What year was it, in fact? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the kind introduction, David. I appreciate it. And I started thinking of this in 2010 and then founded the company uh, in January of 2011. So it's been sort of a nine-year project so far. But going back a little further, my first small business that I ran as a, as a young man between my junior and senior years in college was making ceramic bongs of my own design and selling them. I spent a summer in Hyannis, Massachusetts, and went to a local pottery studio, made molds of a design I produced, and sold them to everybody in Hyannis who seemed to be under 25. <laughs> <laughs> I made enough money to basically buy my first car, which was a Toyota pickup truck that I kept for many years. So my my desire to, to make something in this realm, I guess, has been a, a long-held thing over 30 years, based on a love of cannabis and what has been for over 30 years, a very healthy relationship with cannabis. Uh, and so I think that what, what inspired me was wanting to share that healthy relationships and the benefits that I saw cannabis bringing to my life with the world, with new methods of consumption that basically brought out the best of the plant and left behind the things that you didn't want. And what made me think I could do it 
I think in retrospect, after after how challenging uh, you, you know forming the Firefly business was at times, and how challenging the engineering was at times, I think it's, I could say sheer arrogance was, was what allowed me to do it. The important attribute for success in business. Well, it's a great starting point, and then and then like it or not. I think that one gets as many servings of humble pie as one needs to grow, and we've certainly have had that. But we take that those opportunities as opportunities to listen to our customers and learn how to better serve them. I just wanted to stop you for a minute because I want to get a little bit of a, a picture of what it was like in the year when you started making the bongs, and then did you continue to make them and work on it just on the side as like a personal project all along? before you actually, you know, became your business, your life's work, as it is today? No, I didn't continue it past that summer, actually, because I accomplished my objective, which was making enough money to buy my first car myself. And uh, after that summer, after I graduated from my undergraduate college, I started pursuing a master's degrees in a, uh, human factors and human-computer interactions. So I got pretty busy and wasn't really doing any side projects besides that because I was working while I was getting my graduate education. So I sort of left it behind. I didn't leave behind enjoying cannabis, which never negatively impacted my ability to get things done in my life. In fact, if anything, helped me chill out and relax in but a positive way. <laughs> Counterintuitive is right, because haven't we been told for years that this is, you know, stoners don't do things like that, that they, you know, get lazy, they're just inefficient. Indeed we have, David. We've been given a pack of lies that started in the mid-30s when basically the, the bureaucratic mechanism that used to enforce prohibition was looking for a reason to exist and, and thus found cannabis as its target so it could keep its bureaucratic function and all the people who were in those departments employed and focused on cannabis. And that's when the real negative propaganda started, which of course was directly in the face of, of thousands of years of medicinal use by cultures around the world, like including cannabis being listed in the, the Chinese medicine official pharmacopoeia for thousands of years, being listed in Western medical pharmacopoeias for hundreds of years. Did you know this back then, or is this something you've learned since? So, you know, given your age then, I don't imagine you knew as much as you know now. So looking back, we're all starting to see that there was, there is such a history that's been buried for so many years. But during the time that this wasn't common knowledge, it was a stigma. And, uh, you know, I'm just curious how you handled that, how you managed that in school and this high performance no, I didn't. I didn't know how cannabis propaganda originated back when I started making bongs, or back when I first first started using cannabis. Uh, I've learned it since, basically because information can f flow freely now. It's much easier for truth to out. But back to what I what I knew then. I knew that the cannabis propaganda that I heard in high school from the Nancy Re Reagan led initiative, just say no which was really just a recycling of the old reefer madness stuff. You know, as a young person, I could see that the logic just didn't add up. It made no sense. I knew early on that the official story didn't make any sense and I didn't buy it and it turned out not to be true really at all. And to the thing that you alluded to prior to that, which was the concept that, that using cannabis makes you lazy and unmotivated. It's of course not true to blame a person's behavior in terms of the way that they engage their life on a substance. 
Uh, if someone is lazy and unmotivated, that comes from within. And that is a, that's a much deeper problem than anything that they're consuming, whether it be food, you know, too many milkshakes, too many big giant sodas, or, uh, you know, too many potato chips, or whether it's too much TV watching on the couch, or whatever it is, that comes from within. And that's something that has to be addressed by every person from within. Uh, and to seek a bogeyman that you can blame it on is an easy way to basically set up bogeyman so that you can knock them down. But in my experience, it is not true. Uh, certainly, there are unmotivated people who use cannabis, just like there are unmotivated people who use alcohol or watch too much TV. But uh, I don't believe that there is any relationship that anyone has ever shown that establishes causation between cannabis use and those kind of behaviors. When you were going to college and studying uh, computer science, is that what you were saying? As an undergraduate, I studied product design. Oh, product uh, I always design. knew I wanted to be basically an inventor. And then as a graduate student, I studied human-computer interaction and human factors, which is basically sort of a technical way of looking at the way that humans interact with the world, both from a physical perspective and a neurological and conceptual perspective. Wow. And so did you, you know, your relationship with cannabis, did that continue through college? And what kind of reaction did you have to hide it? Or what was that like? What year was this? Yeah, this was between 1986 and 1990 uh, as an undergrad. And I suppose I hit it enough that it didn't ever cause me any problems. But I was never, I think, overtly secretive because, you know, I mean, of course, you don't go telling everybody, but but it wasn't something that I thought was bad. So I didn't have a problem discussing my perspective on it openly because the first thing is that I could learn a lot from, you know, in those discussions from people who knew more, which at, you know, when I was a young person, um, just about everybody I talked to knew more than I did about the subject. About cannabis? About cannabis, yes. So there were other people in, in your group there as well. So you weren't like just the lone wolf smoking. Uh, no, no, there were plenty. It was a very social activity for us. Uh, it made going to the dining hall much more enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> the food suddenly tasted better. Amazing. It did. I want to ask you uh, back to the Firefly for a minute also, just because, you know, there's so many different delivery systems now and, and more coming right all the time and, and people perfecting things. And so why smoke from a vaporizer? Simply put, because then you're not inhaling burning combusted materials into your lungs. You're inhaling uh, basically an aerosolized form of cannabinoids and terpenes largely, which is can be thought of as similar to inhaling off an aromatherapy device, a little scent making device in your in your house that people are quite familiar with, or even on a simpler level, inhaling the steam coming up off of a cup of herbal tea. It's similar, it's, it's denser, you know, and more intense than that. But that's essentially what you're doing when you're inhaling through a vaporizer. It's like you're inhaling the steam coming off of a cup of herbal tea versus combustion, which um, is essentially burning materials, which not only produces undesirable chemical byproducts, such as benzene above certain temperatures, which is basically universally bad for humans to be exposed to, but also uh, on a just a simple uh, mechanical and heat level, inhaling tiny little cinders. And, and essentially, if you look at them under a microscope, tiny, tiny bits of, of what look like hot coals. And when you're inhaling smoke, you're inhaling basically tiny hot coals into your 
trachea and lungs. And that's just not good under any circumstances for anybody. So vaporizers do away with that. There's no hot coals coming out of a vaporizer. There's just essentially steam, which really can, what can be thought of as the essence of the plant that you can breathe in. So that's the, that's the primary reason to use vaporizers. So I'm just thinking about in the social context, do you imagine, because you know, your case is very strong, why, why inhale dangerous smoke and burning embers if you can have it otherwise, right? Yet the economics of it mean that there's going to be more likely people who can afford it more are going to purchase it as opposed to those who can't. So do you imagine that at some point there'll be just sort of this great divide in, let's say, when you think about beer, you know, people who drink beer out of the bottle versus people who drink it in a in a glass in a fancy bar because they could afford it and it's nicer or, you know, drinking you know, just taking substances from fine china and beautiful tables and having a beautiful vaporizer as part of the experience, but make it, that it would become more of a class thing? And how do we avoid it, if, if possible? Well, that's, that's a very interesting uh, cultural question, David. And I would say that, that any response I give you would be sheer speculation. On my <laughs> of course, part. I yeah, I love speculations, know. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it just occurred to me as well because I'm thinking, well, so you know, it's it's not too expensive, and I think it's it's like around two hundred fifty dollars, right? So that's yes, it's it's a, a little investment, but the, what people are spending so much money now just to go out for dinner, you know, you have to spend a hundred dollars if you want to eat out in New York City, at a decent restaurant. So I could definitely see people investing in this as well, but at the same time, you know, the people just sitting on the corner are going to be smoking joints for the most part. I view it in a positive way. There are many secondary reasons for using vaporizer versus burning something. And I think that your, your question gives us a great opportunity to discuss some of them. Mm. The, the first one, and this is to the question that you just posed, is that vaporizing cannabis is a much more efficient way to deliver what you want from the cannabis, which is the cannabinoids and the terpenes largely, into your body with less waste than y- you would have if you were burning it. And that's simply because when you're burning it, a lot of that stuff, uh, first of all, doesn't even make it into your body. It's just sitting there, you know, smoking without you in, interacting with it. Uh, so it's, it's wasting that way. Another way it's being wasted is that by burning, you're actually changing some of the, the molecules into undesirable forms. So that's another way it's wasted. The third way and, and really kind of the worst way it's wasted is that when you take a puff of a burning you know, joint or, or a pipe or, or whatever it is, something that was burned and you bring it into your body, there's just, there's a natural reaction that, that occurs, which is your body saying, this is way too hot. This is way too caustic to my, my soft tissues. I want to blow it out. And in fact, this is the urge is so strong. I, my eyes are watering, I'm coughing and I have to blow it out almost immediately right. because it's so darn uncomfortable. Now that's what people have been doing for decades. And in fact, we have very funny memes around it that were, you know, popularized by by the wonderful Cheech and Chong movies from the 70s, but also things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High in, in, in the, I forget if that was the 80s. I think that was the 80s. In any case, where you have the teenage stoners or the, you know, the, 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 the funny stoner character Sean blowing Penn. out giant clouds. Well, if you think about it for a second, blowing out a giant cloud basically is the exact same thing as taking a drink from your beer and spitting out three quarters of it. It's the same thing because the stuff that you're blowing out of your body is actually 
all the cannabinoids and terpenes. Now with, with smoke, it, it's, it's more than that. It's all that, that stuff you don't want. But in contrast to that, when you use a vaporizer and use a well-designed vaporizer, what you're inhaling in your body is easier to keep in your body because first of all, it's not too hot. So you don't have that, oh my gosh, it's not too hot, automatic expulsion reaction. And secondly, it's, it's uh, thinner, meaning that it's not as dense. So it means that there are fewer particles settling onto the surfaces of your lungs than with smoke, which means that it doesn't give you as much of a tickle internally. Uh, and so this, these were things that actually we were thinking about when we developed the original Firefly. And we actually designed it to deliver vapor at such a rate that it was absorbable in your body. And so the what comes out of this is you inhale, you can inhale, have a big inhalation off the firefly or the, the two or the two plus and keep it in your body for 10, 15 seconds, very comfortably without very comfortably and just actually savoring the flavor and the aroma. And then you can exhale as you wish, because you've never kind of gone over the edge where you had that automatic ex expulsion reaction. And the funny thing, David, is that it has taken me so long to, and it's really taken the market maturing uh, for me to be able to make that case and people being able to really grok it and really say, oh, I see, blowing out a big cloud of vapor or smoke is just like spitting out my beer that I just drank. It's the same thing, so why would I wanna do that? And what we've been, I think the uphill path that we've had to tread there is that people are so visually dominant that they, the way that they would gauge that they got a hit, you know, in, in prior decades was the size of the cloud that they blew out. When in fact, with a more mature and informed perspective, the way that you gauge how much you get is first of all, knowing how much you're taking in the first place. And then secondly, basically waiting until you can feel the effects and being in tune with your body and your, your brain and your psyche so that you actually are paying attention to that. Because that's the important thing is your body and your brain and your psyche and what it's doing to you. And so this is a very long explanation of why a vaporizer is more efficient than combustion. And ultimately what it means is you will spend way, way, way less on material over the lifetime of owning a, a quality vaporizer like the Firefly series than you would if you were combusting simply because it's such a more efficient form of delivery. And so ultimately, this supersedes any sort of class thing completely because it's ultimately just way more cost effective. So it's, it, it, it sells itself ultimately. And now on the streets of New York, you know, because here we're still like living in the, the pre-stoned age, you know, when you, it's still not legal. Of course, it doesn't stop people from smoking, especially now with the, with the small vapes that people hold in their hand and it's almost impossible to walk down the street without seeing people using it. And I know yours is a little bit more dynamic and has more features than one of those little slim ones that you could hold in your hand. What I appreciate about it especially is how you could also use cannabis. You don't have to use the oils. And it's not, it does, it's not one of those big unwieldy pieces of machinery that you can't really you know, carry around or you have to have like in, in, hidden in your closet or something. Thanks. It, we, we definitely try to make, make a design that someone, if they chose, could keep out on a coffee table or on a bedside table or, you know, as, as a functional, you know, electromechanical device 
that a tasteful person might have that could be on the same surface as your cell phone or tablet or you know what or your nice lamp so we definitely aspire to that what you referred to the firefly 2 and 2 plus products can be used with cannabis the flower the ground up flower or with extracts uh, they work with both and for a lot of people who appreciate the difference between the feeling that you get from the whole plant from cannabis the whole plant versus the different and i would say not quite as rich feeling that you get from the extracts as the base for the fundamental reason that that extracts are missing information that is in the whole plant. Uh, that doesn't mean they're bad. I think that they can be great and they can be super convenient, but the feeling is not equivalent to the whole flower. The whole flower just has more going on. And, and, and so people, a lot of, well, our customers in particular appreciate the difference. That doesn't mean, you know, and they use both. And so we designed something that we made that could do both and it was as portable as we could make it. But I think that w the point that you bring up on just seeing the really the smaller devices that do um, extracts only, which are much easier to vaporize and need a lot less power and therefore can be a lot smaller, is really such a convenient way to consume things on the go when you're out and about. Uh, and so we have a product that we'll be introducing this summer. I can't speak about it in depth, but it's something that we just launched for a test launch in Colorado yesterday, which is very exciting, called the Mini. And it's a very small, super portable cannabis extract vaporizer all in one. So you don't need to do a thing other than inhale. Uh, so we'll be introducing that product because ultimately consumers want choice and those products are always going to be the most convenient and a product that, that is a full-featured product like the Firefly 2 and 2 Plus is going to give you just more functionality so that you can enjoy the plant in a more nuanced and, and sort of complete way. So we think that there's, and these are just examples of two products. I've got a bunch of other products in the hopper that I'm very excited to be working on because as it turns out, there's not one way to characterize the way people want to consume cannabis. There, there are many ways uh, based on lots of different characteristics of the person and so it's my great privilege to actually sort of pursue those and see, see if we can develop products to address a bunch of different use cases. You learned your trade, I understand, partly at Apple, where I imagine you had some uh, good experience in respect to what you were just talking about, of how to provide products for people to use under different circumstances. Could we talk a little bit about that, your Apple experience? Was that after college, or how, how did you end up there? That was actually my last job in the corporate world before I founded Firefly. And I worked there for five and a half years during the release of the original iPhone. So it was a really exciting time at the company. I consider it just a great privilege that, that, I, that I was able to spend that time there. I learned a lot. And it, it, it was sort of my ultimate, my ultimate aspiration as a product person. As a person, like as as a person who sort of has always been identified with with product design, both hardware and software, it was kind of the ultimate. It was my ultimate standard, and it it certainly didn't disappoint. More than you know, I worked in Silicon Valley before that for twenty years, and and product design, in in product design in some form or another, both in hardware mm -hmm. uh, and also in software like user interface design, and no company that I ever worked for before Apple held itself to a standard that was anywhere close to what Apple held. And ultimately, I love that because people there truly want to make great things. No one's perfect in the pursuit of that and, and no person or company, 
but that eye on the prize is there at Apple. And I felt that culturally I was very much in alignment with that. And because the standard was so high and the individuals, especially ones who had been there for a while, had kept such a high standard for so long, it was just so educational for me to basically live up to that standard and get better. At Apple, for instance, a daily thing would be I would be up at a whiteboard leading design discussions around Mac OS X user interface features and the way they worked and all that stuff with groups of senior marketing people, senior engineering, you know, so basically because the outcome of that would be that we would be spending, uh, you know, with a design direction in place, you know, 40 engineers might go working on something for the next one month. And that's, that's a substantial cost. So you can imagine that the, the level of conversation to inform good decision-making was very demanding and exacting and stimulating. And I loved it. One of the things that, that, that Apple does that, that a lot of companies don't do as much is it, they used, we used our own products when we were developing them. So when we were making a new version of the OS, for instance, that's the one that we used in the engineering and design department every single day as we were changing it um, to see, to, so that all of us could, first of all, get a gauge of, well, is, this a, is our new idea a good one or not? And, and then also on a, on a sort of a simpler technical level, did our change break, break the OS or not? Because if it's broken, none of us can use the OS. So the motivation to fix it is super high, uh, especially because every, everyone can see in the bug tracking system who's responsible for fixing what. So it, it created this culture of accountability and responsibility and transparency to a degree that, that I thought was great. And really everything we did was focused on the user. And that was that, that's a theme that that for me far preceded Apple. It, it, user-centered design is is really a philosophy I learned in college as an undergraduate in product design, which is the idea that that it, it's not the artifact that you make, whether it's a piece of software or whether it's a piece of hardware, ultimately isn't the thing that's important. What's important is the interaction of that artifact with the person that you're trying to serve with that artifact. At Apple, obviously, that was what they have pioneered better than anyone else with regard to user-centric design. You know, they were able to make this complicated machine that everyone had to do all these weird things to make it work efficiently and properly and easily, mostly. You know, they made it simple, and that was the key to their success. And also, the culture of Apple, and especially with Steve Jobs, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that as well, because Steve, you know, is famous for having taken LSD at one time, and at, at least one time. I imagine it was probably more than once. And in general, the Silicon Valley has that history going back. And, you know, I was just curious about what it was like when you were there. Was it, did people smoke weed, or what was the vibe inside the Apple headquarters? It never really came up. In the work environment, uh, in fact, I, I never mixed any cannabis use uh, with being at work at Apple, like never once, because I didn't think they were paying me for that. Now, of course, I was using cannabis my own personal time, and certainly I think it was part of my ideation process for sure and continues to be, but I actually never, I never used any, any substance uh, like cannabis or anything else while working at Apple, like literally at the campus or anything like that. So it wasn't a topic that really came up much. Now, 
That said, I worked in Silicon Valley for before I found a Firefly for actually, if you count Apple, about 25 years. And I never had to take a single drug test at any of those companies. And I worked for a lot of the big ones. And there's a reason for that, because actually they know that those companies know that a lot of the people who are in design and engineering are using cannabis or LSD or, or other things. And that that might be part of kind of who they are and how they approach the world and might in fact be correlated with them having professions that, that have really strongly creative aspects. So, so basically I think Silicon Valley as a whole is like, well, Hey, we're not going to test you do your thing. It's very libertarian. Actually, ultimately you do your thing. We'll do Everyone does their own thing. And we're not testing because we know that that might actually reduce the population of engineers and designers by three quarters. <laughs> now I'm speculating on that, but but let's just say it's no secret that that's part of the culture, but I don't have any, any stories to relay on, on how it happened at Apple because I just don't have any, right. literally. Well, today I would imagine since people can vape and, you know, fairly undetected in that way it would probably more likely to happen than, uh, you know, at a time when everyone would, could smell it a mile away and would know that, that something was going on. And then as well as we hear reports constantly about the microdosing coming out of Silicon Valley as well, so that people are working and microdosing using LSD as kind of a work drug. Yes, absolutely. Let's say a co- at cocktail parties or various social gatherings, I've had those types of conversations with lots of people uh, and have, in fact, experimented with microdosing myself on and off and eh, found positives and negatives with various things. But I would say to, of course, now that's getting into, I don't want to go too far afield, but to, but to bring the microdosing philosophy, which I think that you bring up, it's, it's really pertinent uh, and applicable to, 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 to a modern use of cannabis. I would in fact describe the way that I use cannabis primarily as microdosing in that I'll take a puff or two over the course of, you know, a couple hours a few times a day and keep this sort of low, barely noticeable, just past my, my, my threshold level of noticing it, where I get a light effect that is basically, I describe it as a mood enhancement, where I'm just basically a little bit more happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, not so, not, you know, over the edge where I'm euphoric and rolling on the floor or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a father of five and I, uh, and I, and I do engineering and design and, I don't have the time to do that, to do that kind of more deep dive behavior, but I have time to microdose. And so thinking about using the product this way is something that actually informed the original Firefly design, where, where the way that we apply heat is what would be described of in engineering terms as momentary, meaning that we're only applying heat to the material as you're inhaling hot air over it. And as soon as you stop inhaling, we're not applying heat anymore. And so, and because the Firefly heats up so fast, it heats up in three seconds, which in its class of devices, nothing comes anywhere close to that. The fastest other ones are maybe 30 seconds. So we're, we're way faster than anyone. And being fast is no big deal unless you apply it towards something meaningful. And for us, the way we apply it is, well, because you're fast, you can just pick it up, take a puff in a couple seconds, put it down, and then move on to your next activity so it integrates into your life in a low impact seamless way you don't have to sit there and have a big production where you're smoking a whole bowl now you can do that you can you know keep on puffing as much as you want and have a whole bowl and that's great and and when i have time to do that believe me i love doing that 
especially with friends and socially. But quite often, the way I'm using it is just taking a puff, 10-second inhalation, putting it down, and moving on to my next activity. Because then it, well, it fits into my life basically on, on where I am now. And so that's, that really informed um, the Firefly's user-centered design philosophy of being able to take one puff at a time, because that gives people control. It fits into their life better than having to fire up a whole bowl, which is what you have to do with conduction vapes. And ultimately, it also preserves your material better because you're only heating it when you're inhaling. And when you're done inhaling, it's not heating anymore, which means it stays fresher. And so that, once again, gets, that supports the, the whole efficiency intention there. That's how kind of how I'm using cannabis now, and microdosing is, is a great way to describe it. And you have an app as well to even add to the efficiency, correct, with, with regard to how hot you want a, the bowl to be. That is correct, David. You, we have an app where you can set the temperature and do a few other things and set the temperature between 200 and 500 Fahrenheit, which is the widest range of any uh, portable vaporizer, uh, specifically because our technology can, can support that. But you can also change the temperature directly from the, the Firefly 2 or 2 Plus by just doing a couple taps on the buttons. And that's all in our user manual. And I know you talked about elsewhere about how you can go through the range of temperature because as you go through from 200 to 500, there it activates different aspects of the plant. So you can experience the entire full spectrum as opposed to if you just did it at one level. Yes, great point, uh, David. And to expand on that, it's basically because cannabis is not a single thing. It's many different molecules, you know, different terpenes like limonene, which is the the aroma and, and flavor molecule associated with lemons and citrus, or alpha-pinene, which is the one associated with pine cones, or beta-caryophylline, which is the one associated with black pepper, and it goes on and on and on. It turns out all those things have different vaporization temperatures, as do all the different cannabinoids. But getting there, it's not just arriving at 400 or whatever your temperature is that's important. Like you said, it's the journey that's important. It's actually the temperatures that you go past that are important because as you go past each of those temperatures, you're basically getting the absolute freshest, just-in-time release of all the molecules right at their kind of their peak. A great vaporizer lets you vaporize at many temperatures, not just by setting it at different ones, but actually within a single puff. And so that's what Firefly does. It lets you vaporize at a bunch of temperatures in just one single puff, which um, nobody else really does. I guess I would like you to step back for a minute and reflect a little bit about the industry overall, because I've been becoming more and more aware of how this industry is so strategically placed to make a huge impact on society. You know, it's not just another business, because it's starting with the product plant and obviously what all the benefits that could come from that, but it also touches on political, social, health, wellness, equality, diversity, you know, all these very important issues today. And combined with the bull market for cannabis with so much money on top of it, so it's, there's a big responsibility for people who are in the industry, and you and others that I've spoken with take that very seriously and are, you know, working very hard to, to try to implement all these benefits that, that are possible through it. But, you know, at the same time, I look at back at tech, which had similar, like, aspirations, and people were, had a lot of hope invested into the tech industry, and they had a lot of money there. And now we see, after all these years have passed, that it has gone wrong. There was so much expectation around it, but look what happened. 
with the privacy issues, just attitude issues, you know, like the the land grab, the money grab. You know, is there ways that we can, you know, having learned from the tech industry how, you know, good intentions can go wrong and how money can corrupt, what can we do in this industry, which has so much potential, to see that that doesn't happen in the same way? Wow, that's a that's a deep one, David. I know. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but awesome. Oh my gosh, this is. Uh, but I know you can handle it. Well, <laughs> well, thank you, David. Thank you. You know, I have opinions on it, and I think it's fair to say that they continue to evolve, just like they they do with tech. Because you know, thirty years ago, no one was conceiving of social networks, or even most people weren't even conceiving of the internet, even though it already existed. Uh, and so those concerns around privacy weren't things that even that people were even spending time thinking about. We just sort of found ourselves, holy smokes, we got this privacy situation. Now we're dealing with it. And I think just like tech, cannabis technology and the way that cannabis propagates into society is going to continue to evolve. And no doubt we will have sticky, wicked issues that emerge that we have to deal with, some of which we can't foresee right now. That said, I think it's it's important for those of us, like you said, and I, and I take that responsibility thing very seriously. Uh, it, it's it's an opportunity, right, for to help spread this the great benefits of this plant uh, and what it can do for people. What I when I sincerely believe it can it can do for people in positive ways. It's a great opportunity, and with that comes a lot of responsibility to do it in a way that, to your best knowledge, is has integrity and is authentic, uh, and is coming from a place of wanting to do right in the world. And so, boy, that, that manifests then into the way you run your business in infinite and myriad ways. It's good to know who you're buying your products from to the extent that you can know that. And so that's, that's why, you know, with the Internet these days, you, you can do your research. So, uh, you know, I, w- I would say that, that companies that, that try to be transparent and tell you what they're doing and, and what they're about and are aligned with your own values. You know, so, so if your values are these you know, people who, who grow the plant, Organically, for instance, is one way to uh, one example, or in, in ways that support uh, small to medium-sized farmers, which is which is another actually significant issue, and in fact, one that we're that we're facing in California and any legalized state is facing right now, which is the displacement of all the wonderful growers, a lot of the wonderful growers, especially the small ones who help to keep cannabis culture alive and to. Will also propagate a bunch of new strains that are wonderful in lots of ways, and and we're really the keepers of the flame. Who now, because of market forces and greater production of cannabis at bigger scale, have economic pressures that they didn't have a few years ago. And we're seeing that in California, for instance, lots of small farmers out here where I live in Sonoma County. We have lots of small farmers tucked up into the woods. A lot of whom have been making, you know, growing great, great flour for for a long time who are under pressure. In fact, I, I literally know a number of them and it's it's tough times. So so to speak to that, so what's Firefly doing about that? Well, the product that we are introducing in Colorado and that we'll be rolling out to California later this year, our initial and, and most important formulation strategy is just to offer pure cannabis extract with the terpenes from the actual plant, not from some other batch of plant, um, so that it's really representative of the thing that grew in the farmer's field uh, and isn't some, you know, a composite, but but is is uh, basically the greatest fidelity that we can represent. And we not only tell you the strain or what it is right on the front of the package, which, of course, you do by law, 
But we tell you the farm that it came from. We're in the process of building out our website when we launch the, the mini product with links to those farms so that people can see the people uh, and places behind what it is that they're vaping. And we hope by doing that, that we help to basically sustain and fortify that market for small farmers to basically continue to exist and sell their product to people because you know, there's not one product that suits everybody. And so that's why there are so many different strains and ways to, to sort of recombine cannabis. You know, it's our philosophy to basically have the, the, the farmers who are doing this be front and center in what we are telling the customer that we're selling them so that the customer can basically be informed and the people can see that Green Acre Farms or whomever, let's say, for instance, is the ones who actually grew the product inside. So that's an example of how we're trying to, well, how we are putting our money and our intentions where our mouth is in terms of being authentic about what we're, what we're offering. But that's just one little example. Well, that's an important example. Yeah, that's a great example, and it's, I think it matters. I think all those things matter, and it's important for the companies such as yours and others in this whole industry. You know, if everyone picked one thing at least, you know, that they wanted to focus on that makes a difference, is socially responsible, caring for the community that helped sustain the product all these years and just to keep the culture authentic, the way you describe it, that would be amazing results. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing it. I'm not surprised because having met you, I know you're, you know, you have a lot of important things to think about and you care a lot about the social issues that are really a part of who you are. We didn't even get into Burning Man, for example. So, you know, so mm. for the next, we'll save that for the next podcast. But Mark Williams, thank you very much for talking with me and giving us and my listeners uh, some of the benefit of your wisdom. Well, David, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really enjoyed the interview, and I very much look forward to the next opportunity to have another conversation. Same here. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. 